You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Judith Little on the show with me today. She has a phenomenal new book. It's called The Chanel Sisters. And if you love historical fiction like I do, this is a must-have for your reading collection. Uh, Welcome to the show, Judith. Thanks, Hank. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Uh, Judith, you uh, are familiar with the show, so you know that we begin each show with the same question. And that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? You know, I've pondered that question, and I think I might be unusual in the fact that I don't really have a first memory of wanting to be a writer. I just remember that I always liked to write, and I was always better at writing than anything else, particularly math and science. But I never actually thought of writing as a career in and of itself. Um, So I kind of was a late starter to the actually wanting to write a book and a novel. But I did I did go to law school. And I think you find a lot of writers who end up in law school and then a lot end up writing books after law school. You're absolutely right. There is some strange intersection between um, you know, studying and, and possibly practicing law and writing uh, fiction. Uh, do you uh, have any insight into what that intersection might be? I do. I think uh, what I do, because I still practice law, and really the skills are exactly the same to a certain extent, except for possibly the creative part, which is why a lot of <laughs> lawyers become writers. But I, at work, I spend a lot of time researching and writing. And so as a historical fiction author, I, you know, the researching skills are something that I use in both areas. And then the writing, I think if you're writing even a legal analysis, you're having to put together concepts in a coherent way. And that's similar to telling a story, too. So um, do you remember um, a, a book that uh, just completely captivated you and transported you to an, to another place? I think I can think of maybe two. So I loved the Laura Ingalls Little House on the Prairie books when I was younger. And yeah. I remember being pretty obsessed with those as a lot of people were. And I still have the books that I had when I was young. Uh, And so those really transported me. I found that just really fascinating. And I remember even, you know, being worried for her and what's going to happen next and how are they going to survive? And so I think that's what always has always drawn me to historical fiction is reading about people and circumstances that uh, were tough to get through, but people did get through them in the end. And I find some comfort in that today. Um, but another another book that sort of got my got me going on wanting to write historical fiction myself was probably 
uh, Paul McLean's The Paris Wife, because as I recall, that was the first book I'd ever read where it was from the point of view of someone who is in the periphery of a famous person. And I thought that was just fascinating. Um, when did you uh, when did you stumble onto that book? That well, I think I'm I'm slow. It takes me a while to figure out things, and so it was a while ago. It was probably around when it came out, which I don't even know when that was. But I don't know that like the concept that oh, I want to do this or I want to write a novel like this really gelled until after quite a while. So as you're um. As you're you're going through um, your process of getting your your law degree, setting up practice, uh, all of that did did writing fiction ever um, you know cross your path? Did you ever think of something and and you know go well maybe I need to hold on to this uh, you know maybe it'll be useful at an, at another date? Did did that ever come to you um, you know previously and you put it on a shelf for a while? Well, um, I'm embarrassed to admit this, and you honed in right on my um, sensitive spot here. Not sensitive. I'm, <laughs> joking, I'm kidding, but I did. I do have that horrible novel sitting on a shelf in my closet, and it's actually a sort of um, emotional purge of being a summer associate at different law firms when I was in law school, which that was back in the 80s. And those were kind of the heydays of summer clerk programs. I mean, it was kind of wild. And so I wrote, I thought it would be fun to write just this sort of recounting of that. And it's horrible. I mean, it's just so bad. <laughs> and for some reason, though, I know it's in, the, in my closet. I know where it is. I can't bring myself to throw it away, but I also can't bring myself to look at it. Do you... Was uh, is there anything about that novel that you'd like to to share? Like, uh, just w what were some of your uh, in initial thoughts about you know, what the story was? Uh, well, you know that's a good question because one of uh, since I don't have any kind of degree in creative writing and I had never really taken any kind of novel class with um, my first novel, Wickwith Hall. That was really writing that and the process of trying to get an agent uh, and a publisher was really what taught me how to write. Um, just I really learned how to write through all of the rejection. So when I think about that first novel that's on the shelf, one of the big problems with it is that it's just a lot of episodes and um, they don't really they aren't really necessary and they don't really go anywhere. And it's just not a cohesive story. So it wasn't until I decided to start on what would become my first novel. That was, I had always been a good writer yeah. uh, through my whole life. I had been a good writer, but what I didn't realize was that I did not know how to tell a story. So that was a, a learning curve. Well, speaking of that first novel and it really just being uh, like a collection of episodes of things that happen. Um, I, that's a, that is kind of a rookie mistake that a lot of writers make is that, you know, well, I, I have this collection of things that happen, but the lack of that cohesive thread that, that brings you from one instance to another and, and the storytelling uh, ability, that's what, what, what you have to learn, isn't it? It is. Um, and one of, even today when I'm writing, 
and I think this happens to all writers, you know, when we really are struggling with a chapter or a scene and we get totally stuck. And a lot of times it's because I just, I forget in my head what the purpose of the scene is supposed to be. And so if I go back and think, wait, why am I even writing this? How is this moving the story forward? Then I can kind of get back on track to, you know, not staring at the computer screen and having something actually come out. <laughs> uh, Judith, um, you got your uh, initial bachelor's degree in foreign affairs. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. What was it about that um, uh, that major that that uh, fascinated you? Uh, you know, I start. I went to college thinking I was going to be a marine biologist. Uh, I thought that would be a very glamorous life, and out in the sun and probably in some beautiful island somewhere. And then I took chemistry, and that was it. <laughs> uh, so I thought, what am I doing? I don't belong here, and decided to go back to my roots, so to speak, and back where there would be a lot of writing and research involved. And, you know, I don't know. It's strange what draws people to their majors. But for some reason, I just found it really interesting, the kind of dynamics between countries and the decisions that leaders have to make and the balance of power. And uh, I remember learning a lot about, you know, idealism and realism and there are idealistic leaders and then there are realistic leaders and how do you choose between those? So I just found that all really fascinating. I think I also envisioned myself as sort of an international person of some kind of diplomatic fame, you know, living in beautiful cities in Europe, which didn't happen. <laughs> but, yet. You, but you did spend some time in Paris. Is that right? I did. Yes. I studied in Paris for a little while and that was fun. Um, it was definitely an interesting experience. I was, as a student, you know, I did not live a very glamorous life, but it was a very fun experience. What were some of the the cultural things that that shocked you when you get there when you got there? Um, you know, we all hear the the American in, in France and um but but what were what were some of the things that that were just completely foreign to you? Oh gosh, there were a lot. Um one thing I thought was interesting was that Everywhere I went, people would say hi to me. Like everybody knew I was an American. I wouldn't even open my mouth. I'd be walking down the street and someone would say hi. Uh, and I think it was just because probably because I wore tennis shoes. And at that time in France, nobody <laughs> walked around wearing tennis shoes. It took me a while to figure that out. Uh, but another big thing was how in the U.S. everything is so convenient. We live very convenient lives. And I think one of the appeals of France to us is how they, you know, really live so purposefully, right. you know, about and more slowly than we do. But it was frustrating to me because, you know, the stores closed like they didn't it may be different now. But at the time, if you if it's eight o'clock at night and you decide you want to go pick up something from the grocery store, it was closed. And, you know, we were out of luck. So you really kind of had to plan your life. Um and then just even the appliances in the, we lived with, a, or I lived with a family, but 
the appliances were so different from what we have here and just not really as um, efficient. And that, that all was kind of a shock to me. <laughs> so having that experience and, and being the fish out of water, so to speak, um, do you do you feel like that your writing life now harkens back to that time? Or are there things that you learned there or maybe experiences that you had that helped to to shade and color the uh, the writing that you do now? I think so. I think definitely the just kind of the atmosphere of Paris and the atmosphere of France and how beautiful the city is and the way people live there definitely has an influence over my writing. The way people are there, just kind of the culture, you know, is very different too. They're much more reserved and uh, it's harder to get to know people. Um, and so I just think, I think all of that definitely sort of unconsciously infuses the writing and the, just the place too. And having been there and seen it is better than not having been there and seen it. Sure. Um, so you mentioned earlier your, your first book, um, uh, that you published the, uh, Wickwith Hall. Um, what was the inspiration for that book and, and what, what brought, you know, this, this person who, uh, had, had wanted to be a writer for so long and even had made an attempt at it. What was different about this story idea? I think it was almost the perfect storm. And there were a few factors. One factor was I had just started having children and they were young and I needed an escape. So writing was sort of my happy place that I could go to when they were napping or, you know, I had to watch them playing that kind of thing. I just needed, I needed an escape, a place I could go where I could tell people what to do and they would actually do it and listen and be logical to a certain extent. So I really started writing when I had children, as odd as that may sound, because of course, then I was much more busy, but it was really, and it still is, it's a big stress reliever for me and a big way to just kind of escape the world for a little while. The other thing that inspired it is, inspired both books, in fact, was I had picked up a biography of Coco Chanel to read just for fun. And in that same biography, I read about the a confrontation between the British and the French fleets during World War II, which was what inspired Wickwith Hall. And it was a confrontation where the British fired on the French fleet in order to keep it out of German hands and in the process killed over a thousand French sailors. I had never heard of that before until I read this biography. And it was really just very briefly mentioned, but I was really curious because I thought something like that would be something I would have heard of. And I was surprised to find out that it really did happen. And so I wanted to write a book about that. And then in the same biography of Coco Chanel, that was where I learned that she had a sister, Antoinette. And that just always stuck with me that the idea of being the sister of Coco Chanel just kind of fascinated me. So that was uh, something I wanted to write about as well. So is Wickwith Hall a real place? It's inspired by a real place. It's inspired by a country house in England called Ditchley Park. And 
at Ditchley Park. It was a home where Churchill would go during World War II when the moon was high, is how he put it, meaning that German bombers could see his country house from the night sky, so he needed another place to go. And he had his detectives look around, and they decided on Ditchley, which was owned by an American, a woman from Virginia, and her British husband. And she later became a famous decorator. Her name, she was known, better known as Nancy Lancaster. And so, you know, this home was great. It was perfect. And of course, it was the standards to which Churchill could become accustomed. So he spent quite a few weekends at this home. And that, so Whitlethall is not a real place, but it kind of is a real place. Gotcha. When when you start planning out um, an historical fiction novel and it, it and it deals with real events and and you know, you know things that that could be real, um, there's a there's a certain level of realism um, that has to play into uh, historical fiction or it wouldn't be historical fiction. Um, how do you weave in these real life occurrences and then? you know, allow imagination to take over from there? Is there a planning process to a novel like this? There, I mean, to a certain extent, there's a an inherent outline, right? Because, you know, there's the history, and so you have that. So you're not starting something from complete scratch. Um, the, But the, the struggle is remembering that the people – didn't know what was going to happen next, even though we do. So you have to really, you know, keep remembering that they don't have any idea what's going to happen next and not making them just go through the motions of what happens and also not just being an observer of what happens, but being an actual participant. So it's not really something, I mean, to me that you can totally plan out, but that sort of happens as you're writing the story. Um, and for, for the Chanel story, which is told from the point of view of Antoinette, there is not a lot of information known about Antoinette. So I had to go with, you know, everything that I could confirm for sure and then fill in the blanks in a few spots. Well, quite a few spots. But I wanted to tell her story and uh, I did you probably know this, but so for historical fiction, there are people who like there's different schools of thought and there's some people who are str very strict about history and what happened and don't want to mess with that at all. There's other authors who will change right. historical history, you know, change dates of things to move the plot along um, for the Chanel sisters. I did not do that. I wanted to make it so that. Everything that happened in the book could have actually happened. I didn't want to, you know, move any dates around or any places. So I was I was pretty strict with myself on that because there were things I had to fill in and I wanted them to, you know, be seen from the point of view where they could have actually happened. You said that there was something that connected Wickwith Hall with the Chanel sisters. What uh, what what weaves these stories together, even if it's just in, in the mind of the writer? It would be, I suppose it would be, you know, Coco, Chanel. I learned about both of them 
through her biography. And I also, both stories involve someone who has lived at a French convent. And so I'm in a writing critique group and we always joke that I must have lived in a French convent in a past life because the, the book I'm working on next also involves someone who I, I don't think will actually be at the French convent, but this person did go to school at a French convent or maybe that was just so popular in France. I don't know. Funny. Yeah. So, uh, so you you publish Wick with Hall, and then um, you know your your slate is clear, so to speak. Um, when when do the Chanel sisters start coming onto the stage of your mind? Right away, pretty much. Um, you know, the publishing process takes so long. So once you basically have a contract to get your book published, it's usually about a year before it comes out. So a lot of times, uh, I think authors are have already moved on to the next book. So right. they're talking about the past book, and it's you know you have to remind yourself, wait, what happened? Who did this? <laughs> uh, so, but I knew I wanted. I, I definitely knew I was going to write about Antoinette next, and my agent was very excited about that. So she was always asking, "How's that Antoinette story coming along?" But since I had really learned so much writing the first novel. Thankfully, um, the Chanel sisters did not take as long to write as Wickwith Hall. So, um, you know, when you when, when I first got the book and, and started reading about it, um, I, I had a similar reaction to, to what you were saying earlier about um, Antoinette. Um, I was like, did I did I know there was an Antoinette? Did, um, I, you know, you hear Coco Chanel and that's a name that that uh, most everyone's familiar with. But I don't think I knew that that there was another sister. Um, what was uh, what was it that got you interested in these sisters, and and how long did it take for you to start realizing that there is another story here? I kind of had a feeling that there was a story. I don't know why. I I it just as I was reading the biography of Coco, I thought, how can you be the sister of Coco Chanel and there not be a story, right? I mean, right. there's got to be something, but. The there's a million biographies about Coco, and they all pretty much say the same thing about Antoinette, which is that she was a hard worker, that she was not as clever as Coco or as resilient. Um, but when I looked into it myself and did more research, I just it and kind of it was all in the process of writing the book. It seemed to me that she was much more than that. That she it almost sounded like an older sister saying, oh, she's not as smart as me, you know, and that's what the biographers were putting down in their book, even though it looks from the facts of the situation that she played a very big role in the founding of the Chanel empire and uh, that she was really a modern woman herself. She was self-made just like Coco and, um, you know, she well, a lot of people don't realize also is that they were raised in a convent orphanage as charity cases after their mother died. Their father abandoned them. I know uh, I know. I would always think of Coco. I had no idea. I mean, I thought she came out of the womb, you know, with a string of pearls around her neck. <laughs> of course. Yeah. So I found that fascinating. And it was something Coco hid her entire life. She lied about it. She never admitted 
to anyone that she had been abandoned by her father or that she grew up in, in a convent orphanage. So Antoinette, though, was there. So Antoinette knew that. So I wanted to use Antoinette's perspective to show Coco maybe in a different light. And as I was researching, that was when I saw that, you know, Antoinette was kind of a force herself. So um, there's there's lots of information about Coco Chanel, and then you know as time goes on, more and more is uncovered, and and the the secrets that that she tried to keep hidden, like you alluded to, um, most of that stuff has been uncovered, you know, in the past. But how did you how did you research for the character of Antoinette? Where where did you find stuff about her? Well, that was tricky. It was actually a lot harder than I thought it would be. The there so there's all of Coco's biographies. So I looked at those and tried to piece together. You know, there's there's definite facts, certain things that are known for sure. Like in 1910, for instance, she signed the ledger of the first uh, shop that Coco ever set up. So she was definitely there on that first day with Coco. Um, and there's other things we know for sure. But so one of the first things I did was I wanted to find out you know, where else she might have been. So I looked at the French census records, which are actually all online, which is amazing, but they're all, um, I guess they're scanned, so you can't search them. And they're all in this beautiful, lovely, cursive handwriting that can be a little difficult to read. Um, so it took me a while, but it, it I can't say it wasn't fun to look at all that old writing. Um, so I did that. And so I was able to fill in some holes and some gaps about where Antoinette might have been. And then I also looked at old French newspaper archives because in my modern mind, I thought surely there would be references to these two glamorous, you know, the women who have become glamorous, Coco and her sister Antoinette. And I came up with nothing and I couldn't figure out why is there nothing about them and then I finally realized it was because at the time, you know, people, they weren't society. They weren't part of society. And so they would never be written about in the papers. There would be no um, kind of announcements about for people like them. So in a way, not finding anything told me a little bit more about them and about French society at the time. But one thing I did find in the newspapers was I found references to Antoinette in a small section, kind of in the back of the paper, it really like tiny, tiny lines. And it was part where they, it was a notice in the paper, kind of notifying people who looked of where certain people were traveling. And so her name was listed among other names that had nothing to do with her, not people she knew, but it would say, you know, here's people going to Paris, then it would have her name or to DeVille or to Biarritz, which were places that Chanel had opened her first boutiques and I couldn't figure out why Antoinette's name was there. And then I finally, after a while, realized that she was notifying clients where she was going to be. And to me, that indicated also that she, you know, really was important in the Chanel business. If she was, you know, advising the type of clientele that Chanel had, which, you know, were very wealthy, aristocratic, um, sort of diva type women and they wanted to know where she was and she was traveling on her own doing this. Um, 
which seemed to me just, you know, she wasn't this silly, not as clever person that the biographers made her out to be. Well, it, um, the the book, The Chanel Sisters, is not an exhaustive biography of these characters, but you choose to show us the story in a window of about, I, I think, 24 or 25 years, the, 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 the story um, covers in the book. What, uh, how did you choose the, the window into their lives that you would show us? Uh, right. So the book ends in 1921, and it. I just really wanted to show the beginning of Chanel and how it was founded, and I wanted to show what um, what made up sort of what drove Coco and how her character was formed from those early years. And I also wanted to show. I mean, to me, the convent time was important because. So many of her designs, her aesthetic, you can look at it and you can just see a con, like you can see nuns, you can see, um, you know, the convent life with the simple lines and simple fabrics, um, the use of black and white, the, her chain link belts are, if you look at the, what the nuns wore, they wore rosary belts around their waist that had a little piece that hung down that looked just like her chain link belts. I mean, everything she did, she lied about her past, but she gave hints of it in everything that she did. She simplified everything. She liked everything to be clean and orderly and clean smelling. And so I thought that was important to show um, just kind of where she came from and also what drove her with the fact that her father abandoned her and she uh, was really driven to support herself because she had seen her mother died when she was young. Uh, the father was really never around. And so the mother worked very hard and trying to feed the children and ended up dying. And I think Coco learned that relying on someone else can literally kill you. And she just kind of had this innate need to not rely on anybody else except herself. So I think by, uh, it does, it as I said, it ends in 1921. And some people have asked why it doesn't address Coco's role as a Nazi collaborator during World War II, but that was 1940. So that's out, out of the scope of the timeline. And I think though, part of her her personality and her formative years might give some idea as to why she might have done that because she was one or two things she definitely was one was a survivor and another was an opportunist well, the book is available everywhere now uh it, it came out yesterday so um you can go grab it um a great piece of historical fiction to start off 2021 uh, which we're all hoping is a much better year than 2020 was. Uh, you can get the Chanel Sisters in Kindle edition or audiobook or, you know, real life paper, uh, however you like to read books. Um, Judith, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff you do, where can they find you online? They can find me uh, on my website, which is www.judith with an E, J U D I T H E, little. 
judithlittle.com and I'm also on Instagram at judithlittle and on Facebook uh, I'm kind of on Twitter I'm trying to figure out Twitter so if anybody <laughs> has any advice for me I would love it I'm kind of overwhelmed by Twitter but I'm working on it wear an asbestos suit when you get on Twitter <laughs> I know, I know. that's another thing I'm learning where to go and where not to go right right well, uh, we're going to send everyone to pick up their copy of the Chanel Sisters. Like I said, there's links to it in the show notes. We'll also put links to your website and Instagram and all that good stuff. Uh, Judith, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. A hitman with a conscience. Ian Bragg is paid to kill people. Only bad people and not many, but for a great deal of money. Case the target. Make the hit. Move on until he meets the woman with sparkling green eyes who changes everything. A few pre-readers had this to say about Ian Bragg. Mark Dawson, million-selling thriller author, says a rip-roaring ride from start to breathless finish. Craig Martell hit a home run with the operator. The taut, lean prose and lightning-fast pace make this a page-turner without sacrificing an ounce of story or depth. You'll find yourself rooting for the hitman main character as he faces the toughest decision of his career. The Operator is the start of a new thriller series I expect to see burning up bestseller list for years to come, says A.C. Fuller, author of the Crime Beat and Alex Vane media thrillers. Suave, romantic, and lethal, Ian Bragg is everything you want in a highly paid assassin. Can't wait to ride this train, says James Blatch, self-publishing formula. It's been a long time since I fell this hard in love with a book, a very long time. Author of Women of Wine County Romantic Suspense, Terry Wells Brown says. Grab this book from Craig Martell, The Operator. Both Barrels Publishing is the brainchild of successful indie author James P. Sumner. He has self-published over 15 titles in the last five years and has over 800,000 downloads so far in his career meaning he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with the indie publishing community. Knowing the struggles of the modern-day indie author as well as he does, he wanted to create a platform that would allow writers of any level to learn the ropes, navigate the pitfalls, and produce a professional novel without wasting time or money in the process. Both Barrels Publishing is the perfect one-stop shop for any indie author, combining James's expertise with his own team of editors and designers so you can help your novel realize its full potential and learn how to publish yourself. The purpose of Both Barrels Publishing is to help indie authors get their novels ready for publication without all the stress, hassle, and unnecessary expense. We want to make your lives easier, which is why we're giving you access to a top-notch team to publish your novels along with a generous discount on their services. You can also work one-on-one -on -one with James to learn the intricacies of self-publishing. No hidden cost, no false promises. We simply want you to publish the best version of your novel. BothBarrelsPublishing.com